Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Uh, yes, my name is Bob Webster. I am a professor of mechanical engineering at Vanderbilt. Um, I also have appointments in the medical center in neurosurgery, urology, uh, ENT, and medicine. And uh, most recently, I'm now a professor in our business school, professor of management, uh, because I teach entrepreneurship at Vanderbilt as well. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. Uh, I would like to go back when you were a child. Do you have any memories about uh, maybe something got you interested in science or technology? Do you have any memories about that? Well, I used to read a lot, and I used to read uh, you know, books about science fiction. Um, I got really interested in uh, you know, the show MacGyver when I was first able to watch you know, TV late at night. I used to be allowed to stay up one hour later so I could watch MacGyver. And man, I loved how that guy would uh, solve every problem through his knowledge of science and technology. So you know, not necessarily robotics per se, but the ability to be creative and to you know, find solutions that are outside the box because you understood scientific principles and engineering principles was really appealing to me. That's interesting. So I would like to go back since you have electric engineering bachelor degree, what is the first robot? I don't know if because later you have mechanical engineer, masters and PhD. Do you remember right. any first robot you build? Well, yeah. So I mean, the the kids these days would probably find it amazing, but it wasn't until college that I actually built a robot for the first time. Yeah. Uh, so I built a Lego robot as a freshman, um, but the first I would say real robot was when I was a junior um, and I was working on an internship. And I got to build an inchworm pipe crawler that was, it was pneumatic and it had, uh, you know, an extendable section in the middle and two little grippers at the ends so it could crawl through four inch pipes. And it, its job was to go look around in uh, uh, nuclear environments um, and where people don't, obviously don't want to go. So that was the first, what I would say, real robot that could be functional and be used in the real world that I ever built. Mm, great. So... I would like to ask you now about soft robotics. How you define soft robotics from your work expertise? And that's the first question. And what could be the most important question we have to consider while implementing soft robotics to medical robotics? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's an excellent question. And I think people are still in the process of working out these kinds of definitions. I've actually had some uh, conversations with uh, my own students and co-authors about this very topic uh, over the last year. And so my definition of a soft robot would be any robot where it's undergoing large deformation as it works, where you essentially need some kind of, you know, either mechanics-based model, if you want to approach it from a modeling perspective, or uh, some kind of, you know, advanced controller that's going to handle these large deformations. Um, so that's, I would, I think that, you know, all soft robots fall into that category. And that category is broad enough to include, so I've done a lot of work on continuum robots, and some people make a distinction between the two fields, but I feel like a lot of the design principles are the same, and a lot of how we use these robots, what they're good for, 
before, how they work is the same. And so I don't know where you would create an artificial um, you know, stiffness threshold between you know, hard, soft, and sort of hard, sort of soft. So I think the real distinction is, is the robot bending significantly? Because you know, traditional industrial robots don't. And then all of the soft robots that we talk about every day do bend a lot. So that, that would be my distinction and my definition. And if I ask you for the maybe the most important question that me that maybe the community uh, neglecting and have to focus on, do you think that oh you think we have to focus on this question, but it's not not yet addressed by the community? What could be the sort of question you have in your mind? Well, I tend to be a very applied kind of uh, person, and so uh, you know, so I think what we need is we need some really, really good applications where we can push some of these technologies into the real world. And I mean, we have a million examples of very, very creative, um, different kinds of soft robots, but the field is still really, really early on. And until we get the one thing that takes off, and I make an analogy back to you know when I first got into grad school, uh, you know, intuitive search which makes the Da Vinci was, you know, just a tiny baby startup that everybody thought probably had a reasonable shot of going out of business um, at the time. And, uh, you know, and so medical robot robotics in general was at roughly the same stage then that um, soft robots is now uh, in the sense that there's a lot of interest in academia. A lot of people had done initial kind of proof of concept work and a huge variety of different you know, types of robots and areas, uh, but nothing had really made it out there into the real world to really inspire the rest of the field. So just as we've seen that you know, Da Vinci, the intuitive uh, surgical robot, has sort of legitimized all of surgical robotics. I mean, back when I first started, if you wrote a surgical robotics proposal and sent it to NIH, there was a significant number of reviewers that would be like, robots in surgery are just fundamentally not a good idea. I'm not gonna you know, give your proposal a good score. Um, yeah. But then seeing the success of the Da Vinci, then that opened everybody's mind on these study sections to, hey, you know, these surgical robots can actually work. They can do useful things for doctors and patients. And sort of, I mean, you never get that question. You don't even have to address it in your proposals anymore because everybody knows that robots have huge potential in surgery. So I would make the same analogy right now to soft robots where we, uh, we really need a couple of, you know, one or, or several companies to come along uh, and be launched by people in our community and really take this uh, and show the world that it can do, you know, one or two really awesome, you know, killer apps or specific things. Mm. Thanks. Mm -hmm. That's a very important point. I would like to ask you here, do you think when you have like funding and grant, do you think the project must be project driven or technology driven in that case? Yeah, well, so in my world, I mean, I do surgical robotics, and so I do both. But if I want to drive the proposal by technology or by, you know, really interesting science, I send it to NSF, National Science Foundation, because they are interested fundamentally in the basic science and advancing the body of human knowledge. Uh, and then if you have in that same proposal some nice medical things, well, that's just icing on the cake. Um, and then if you send a proposal in contrast to the National Institutes of Health, which I get a lot of my funding for, then the proposal should be all about you know, helping the doctor, helping the patient, what is the medical problem? Uh, and then the robotics aspect is a means to an end. It's not necessarily there in and of itself, right? So, so I, you know, I do both and I think different funding agencies support uh, different aspects of that continuum between uh, you know, basic science all the way to really translational work. So we will go back and, uh, again for uh, how to make sure that 
the project to develop is going to be applied or be beneficial uh, to med medical sector as well. But before that, I would like to go for what are the mis most misconceptions you have witnessed about soft robotics or maybe something concerning for you. Hmm, in misconceptions. Um, I, I think maybe that all robots will be soft one day. <laughs> I don't think they all will be soft one day. I mean, soft robots, I think, are great in applications where you're dealing with people, um, where you're lifting people, moving people, where you're working inside people, uh, or where you're in any environment where things are very delicate and you don't want to damage them. Uh, or potentially even where you need very inexpensive robots where you need to throw the robot away a whole bunch um, because you need to just use one after another, which might be like a nuclear environment where you don't want to decontaminate it. might be in medicine, you know, you don't want to spread, um, you know, diseases from one patient to another, so you want something disposable. Um, so uh, I don't think soft robots will solve all problems. I mean, industrial robots are great at what they do, um, hence why they've made such a big impact in the world. Uh, so I guess if I had to say misconception, I would, I would go there. Um, I don't know. I think the other misconception maybe is that, that soft robots will solve everything in medicine too. I mean, there are lots of instances in medicine where the disease process is close enough to the surface that you don't necessarily need a soft robot. So if you look in the abdomen where the Da Vinci has really excelled, I mean, that's a hard robot and it's done a great job and you can make enough space in the abdomen um, for that robot to do its job and hence it's a better solution if you can actually do that. So yeah, so I guess, I guess if I had to put, say, a misconception, but I, I mean, I think a lot of people understand these things, so I wouldn't call that a strong misconception, just maybe an occasional misconception. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other misconception you, you would like to say? Uh. Um, you know, not really. I mean, I, it's not like I go to conferences and I see a lot of people presenting stuff that I disagree with. I mean, I think we're all advancing the field together, and I think we, uh, we see some of the, mm -hmm. a lot of the research challenges in similar ways. Yeah, okay. So I'm curious to ask you first before going to your work, uh, what is maybe the most inspiring living creature that inspires you for designing your continuum of soft robotics for medical research. Yeah, most inspiring living creature. I mean, just uh, it's it's octopus tentacles uh, or elephant trunks because of just how amazingly dexterous they are, uh, and how how the muscles in there can control the bending in such intricate ways, uh, where they can they can be very strong when they need to be. They can be very soft when they need to be and conformable. So I've, you know, I've looked at tentacles and elephant trunks since really since grad school, uh, where I worked in uh, as an undergrad researcher in Ian Walker's lab, who I know has been on the mm -hmm. podcast before. And so he introduced me really to the Clemson elephant's trunk arm. And that uh, partly set my course for grad school because I started thinking, well, that's awesome, but could we make it small enough to go into a human uh, and be a medical device? Um, and so, so that's really was, was the origin for me is looking at those. Interesting. So I would like to ask you if you can tell more about your research work for the audience, what actually you focus on in, in your research. Sure, yeah. Uh, it's a good, good segue because uh, I'm focused on all medical robots and the majority of what I do is uh, very small um, you know, ro continuum robots. So these are 
Uh, especially if you've heard of concentric tube robots. These are robots that are made out of nitinol tubes that are telescoping inside of each other um, and pre-curved. So when you axially rotate them, the curvatures interact and uh, they deform one another. Uh, and through this mechanism, you can get something that's the size of a needle, um, yet it can bend and elongate uh, in a way that I describe to the popular media as like a tentacle, although it's nothing like the muscular hydrostats that we know uh, actual tentacles are. Uh, but it does bend and it does elongate, which is conceptually similar to a tentacle. So that's one, one area of research. Um, the, another mechanism that we've more recently worked on um, is something that would be similar but could go through a um, flexible endoscope. Uh, so it turns out concentric tube robots don't work very well in flexible endoscopes because they torsionally wind up all the way along the shaft of the endoscope. So you need a different mechanism when you want to go through a flexible endoscope. So we've been working on you know, a soft robot made from a pair of tubes where the tips are glued together. And then we've um, removed material from each tube in the tip uh, so that when you push and pull those two tubes, since the tips are attached, then the net result is a bending you know, sheath-like device that's small enough to go through the port of an endoscope. So that's, uh, that's you know, kind of some of the, you know, uh, basic soft robot principles where you're encoding, you know, material properties that you want into the structure of the device and then applying, you know, pushing and pulling to get the device to bend the way you want. So we're adapting those techniques and we're making them really, really small. I mean, to fit through these ports, you've got to be a couple millimeters in diameter, and you still have to leave a huge open space in the middle so that the surgical instrument can be delivered through. Um, so a lot of my work relates to dexterity, and that's providing really local dexterity at the tip of endoscopes um, so that surgeons can do very precise, small surgeries in locations where today they would have to make large incisions and open the patient up um, just to access the surgical site. So I would say, you know, that's probably about, um, you know, three, two thirds, three quarters of my work. Uh, and the rest of my work revolves around um, solving specific medical problems where it may not even be a soft robot. So we go and we observe in the operating room, we watch what surgeons do, and then we bring the entire suite of engineering tools to bear on whatever we identify with them as the problem. And so that is played out in just a myriad of different ways, including um, robots that drill bone in various ways, uh, robots that help insert um, cochlear implants uh, into the ear, mm -hmm. uh, just, just a variety of um, medical devices that don't share any common technical theme aside from the application-oriented theme of solving an important problem for patients and doctors. That's very interesting. I would like to stop in the point because you design continuum robots or mechanical parts that could be less invasive or uh, more accurate. And that's very interesting because if a student asks you and um, how you approach the problem, if you have a problem, for example, cochlear implant, for example, how you first step you define a problem and then you take steps to the design, either, oh, I have to go to, to continuum robot or maybe mechanical part. How's the decision is, uh, to reach the final uh, decision to design uh, your robot? How you approach the problem firstly?
Right. Yeah. So I approach the problem um, by hopefully not having too many preconceptions and by uh, with my students going in and observing what the doctors are doing. And then it's a continual process, just like any time when you work across fields and you work with colleagues who speak a completely different language. Doctors speak a totally different language. And a lot of times we as engineers will go and look at the problem and we'll say, well, a you know, a soft robot would be perfect for this. Right. And then you talk through with the doctor and what you thought was the real difficult thing about the surgery turns out to be not at all a problem in their view, uh, but it's something else about the surgery that they have an issue with. So what we try to do, it requires actually a lot of, um, it's several years of education. So we have to get educated about the surgery. We have to you know, go and watch a lot of them. We have to watch a lot of YouTube videos. We have to learn about the anatomy and really understand the process that's going on. And then that also equally important, if not more important, is to have the doctors in our engineering labs on a regular basis to the point that they get to know what the various technologies can do. And then they start imagining things. So if they see you know, a soft tendon operated robot in my lab, or they see a concentric tube robot, then you know, they'll go out and it'll be in the back of their mind and their subconscious while they're doing surgery for the next, you know, several weeks. And then they'll come back to the lab and they'll be like, you know, have you ever thought about like trying, trying this surgery this way or what? And it's something we would never even have known about. I can give you one, one great example is uh, what my startup company right now is working on is concentric tube robots delivered through a rigid endoscope. And one of the uh, concentric tube robots has a fiber laser inside to cut tissue. The other one does retract Action. And this is, we're applying this to both prostate surgery and uh, removal, removal of uterine fibroids. Um, and I would have never thought about, so at the time we had concentric tube robots and we were thinking about them as maybe needles that you could embed into tissue or may, we didn't really know necessarily what medical application, but through a partnership with a surgeon who had been coming to my lab regularly for a period of several years, he uh, identified um, not only like roughly how to use the technology, but also the surgical procedure. Because I'd never heard that they used fiber lasers when they cut out prostate tissue prior to that. Um, but he came into the lab one day and he's like, I know what we need to do with this thing. We need to put a laser inside of it and we need to uh, use it to cut out prostate tissue because this is a surgery that's just so difficult that uh, only a few people can do it in the country. But yet they're booked up for you know months and years in advance because uh, there's, you know, randomized controlled trials showing that you will have, you know, you'll be able to control your bladder after surgery when you have it done this way and you um, at a much higher rate than if you don't. And you'll have erectile function, which you, you know, at a higher rate than you would otherwise. And so the patients are seeking out these few specialists, but it's such a hard thing to do manually with your hands uh, that not many people can offer it. And so, so he walked into the lab and he brought that, but he would have never brought that if he hadn't been around the lab for a number of years uh, and just been looking at what we were doing and having brainstorming sessions and talking about other kinds of surgeries that we could do. Uh, so it's that constant process of just like really building a tight team um, and then listening to one another and really educating yourself at least enough to be dangerous in the world of the other person. Mm -hmm. So if I ask you what is most challenging part when you're working with human body, something you think is still challenging to design a mechanical part or soft continuum robot. What, what do you think is something challenging to imply your robot in human body? Still challenging. Yeah, I, I think that honestly, I think the most challenging part is making the robot completely safe and completely like robust and reliable. I think it's actually 
Not too difficult to do the initial proof of concept uh, study in some of these areas. Obviously, it requires creative creativity and that inventive spark to be able to come up with the idea and then do the proof of concept. And that's often where we leave it in academic labs. But mm. where the hard work is, is making it do the same thing hundreds of times in a row. And not only that, but then making sure that it's completely safe and thinking about every way, oh, could somebody pinch their fingers in that? Or, oh, what if, you know, could you have an electrical short circuit? And if so, what would happen? And that's when you go to a company and you start going through the FDA process, this is why it's a challenging and long process. You, uh, somebody once told me, I think this is probably true that for a surgical robot, like 90% of the code that you write is going to be checking errors and making sure things are safe, and 10% is going to be what you actually need to make the robot do you know, what it would need to do to do a proof of concept in your lab. Um, so so the, you know, the, the hard work of innovation, I feel like, is in solving those problems in an elegant way to where the technology can actually be completely safe for the patient and doctor and usable by the doctor. I mean, that's the other aspect is just the interface. I mean, doctors are very busy people who they got to sit down at your robot and feel like, wow, this is fun. I want to do this. I want to use this robot. And getting your user interface to the point where it feels fun to every doctor that sits down in front of it is a long and you know, challenging process with lots of false starts and lots of you got to hear no, it doesn't feel right about a thousand times before you finally hear, wow, that was great. Or, or better yet, you hear from, we heard from one of our doctors, like we said, what do you think about the user interface? And she was like, user interface? What are you talking about? And so <laughs> when you get to the point where it's so immersive that the doctor just doesn't even think about the user interface, then you know you're really yeah. onto something. <laughs> um, I must come up with the safety. Do you think safety in terms of the material used or performance, mechanical performance, um, how you can tell us more about how we can make ha we make sure that medical robots are safe. The how can you make sure that robots are safe and uh, from a mechanical and electronic perspective? Um, I think the uh, number one thing I've learned um, through going through this process is the mechanical parts are somewhat intuitive. So. Uh, you do have to think about them, and they're not things you think about initially when you're doing new proof of concept. So there are things like pinch points. There are things like potential for um, things to just break, like glue joints or welded joints to just break and fall apart. Uh, so these are, these are things that you either can kind of just look at your robot and see, or you test your robot a bunch, and it breaks on you, and you're like, oh, we should fix that. Um, now, on the software side, it's a different story. On the software side, what you want to do is you want to decentralize things as much as possible. You want to have a lot of, if you can have a whole bunch of different microprocessors embedded in there, all doing like their small local jobs, then you have a much better chance to be what they call single fault tolerant. So that if any one yeah. thing breaks, then the entire system doesn't go down. But if you have one central computer running everything, if that computer dies on you, then you, what happens? Then your robot could go nuts and hurt your patient. So I would say that's that the biggest takeaway is decentralize things to the um, maximum amount that you can, both from a processor, you know, hardware point of view, and then also from a software point of view. I would, I'm curious to ask you this question. For example, the cochlear implant, when you design the shape, either indulation or maybe bending inside the cochlea, do you think that maybe uh, simulation give you insight, for example, do you, how much amount of friction you need your robot have to with the tissue? How do you see these parameters when you design uh, the continuum robot? 
Oh yeah, we use simulation a lot when we design continuum robots. So we're we're constantly uh, using you know using computers to do this computational design, is what we call it. And for cochlear implants specifically, I can tell you it's something we're working on right now. Is we're doing impedance sensing of the shape of the robot inside the cochlea. So the cool thing about cochlear implants is they have lots of uh, little metal pads on them, which is what they use to ultimately stimulate the nerves inside the cochlea. So you know, for those of you who don't know, cochlear implants are, you know, one millimeter diameter rubbery, uh, you know, soft robots, and they have these electrical pads on them. And so what we're doing is we're making electrical measurements between one pad and the next, and there's about, you know, 22 or 24 of these pads on each cochlear implant. And through doing that, um, we can actually sense the proximity to the cochlear wall of the implant. And the goal at the end of the surgery is to get the implant right up against the inner wall if you can, so that the, the electrodes are closest to the nerves. And what you really want to do is you want to be able to sense if there's any faults. So you, if you had buckling of that electrode in the cochlea, you might not be able to see it, you might not be able to feel it as you're pushing it in, but if you can measure the electrical uh, impedance between those two pads, you could know, oh, something's off here in the middle, the pads are way farther away, or I'm just getting a reading that I don't expect from them. So we're kind of doing shape sensing and proximity sensing to the wall of the cochlea um, using those built-in electrical pads, which is a really, really cool way to use something that's already there for you um, in, a, in a neat way in a cochlear implant. And if I ask you about the challenges, something you, you sounds really challenging to you when you're working on medical robotics and you still you have to figure out what that thing could be. Yeah, so the, the thing that's, I feel like, most open-ended challenge uh, a lot of times, especially with soft robots in medicine, is what should the user interface look like and what information do you present to the doctor and then what do you have the doctor uh, put his hands on, his or her hands on in order to control the robot and how do you map that to the robot's shape? Because obviously you have many, many degrees of freedom with a continuum robot um, or soft robot and the user interfaces and the human hand and arm usually doesn't have that many degrees of freedom. So how do you map the two? And what we found um, specifically with the concentric tube robots that I was mentioning through an endoscope is we give the doctor control, we thought originally we'd give the doctor control of just the tip of the robot, but now we give the doctor control of a, you know, what we put in his hands, and you can see some videos of this on our website, virtuososurgical.net. Uh, we put a little um, rod in the doctor's hands that extends outward from the fingers. And then when you look at the screen, that looks like the tip of the device that you see on the screen. And all of the complicated bending continuum soft robot stuff is actually going on you know, off screen behind the image that the doctor is seeing. So we've sort of abstracted away the fact that these things are bending a whole lot and we're giving the doctor something that represents what he or she is seeing in their hand. And when we did that, then the doctor's brain immediately snaps into exactly how to move the uh, controllers to make the robot do what it's doing. And the really cool thing about that is most of the videos that we show of our system are the first time that the doctor has ever used it. So we have like very small learning curve. Anyone can sit down at the system and immediately go to work doing surgery, um, which is, I mean, that's amazing because it took you know 10 years of work to eventually get there and trying out a lot of different user interfaces so when i say that when you say the hardest i mean i think of hardest as most open-ended and most difficult to like it's not a step-by-step -step, uh, incremental process to go from point a to point b so i don't want to make it out that you know designing the soft robot itself is 
an incremental process, it does require creativity, but you know roughly what you have to work with. You know what the anatomy looks like. You know what uh, materials you have to work with for the robot and what techniques you want to use. And so you can, you know, just pound away at the problem day after day and make, you know, small incremental tweaks. But with user interfaces, like, you might need a whole completely different concept and it might not even exist in the world um, when you start out. So I would say that's the harder problem from my point of view. So going back to controlling continuum robots for medical application, do you think traditional control techniques is working very well with you or we have to come up with advanced techniques that can account the morphology of the continuum robot or soft robot? Yeah, I think that really depends a lot on the type of robot and then the context that you're using it in. Uh, I don't think there's one answer to that. I think there are some robots where traditional ways of controlling are work totally fine and some where they don't. Um, we tend to, in my lab, we tend to want to use models whenever we can, uh, just because I feel like as if you have a model, even if it's not a perfect model, why not leverage it? I mean, I, I see the, uh, the argument for, let's say if we want to iterate faster in the field, we want to go really fast and we don't want to take the time to write down a model, like maybe you could throw machine learning or something like that at the problem, um, where you might go quicker. Uh, but from my point of view, I think if you have a model that's at least reasonable, then a lot of the um, classical control techniques can work for you. Now, I don't want to treat that as a one-size-fits-all. I would say that's, in my experience, the type of robots that we're uh, working on. I think if you get to very soft robots that are, you know, that are deforming in every dimension in lots of interesting ways and maybe distributed, distributed actuation, then, uh, you know, all bets might be off and then you might need a really exotic new way of controlling them. Um, we have not really had to do that. We've been using classical techniques in, in control in my lab. So if I ask you, where is there any direction you thought would work out very well, but empirical result proved something else? Ooh, something I thought would work out well and then... I was proved wrong. Um, I mean, I feel like it happens all the time, but uh, usually I try to forget those things after the fact. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, I, I have a good example. So um, one thing that I didn't think would work uh, when my student brought it to me, this is actually Hunter Gilbert, who's now a professor at um, LSU. So. We'd been talking about how can you do uh, shape setting in uh, nitinol uh, tubes for our concentric tube robots. And we'd been using, you know, hot furnaces to try to do this. And then you have issues like how, how do you quench it and can you get the temperature? Can you really control the temperature and time that you're treating that sample? Um, and Hunter had the idea. He's like, hey, I think we can do this quicker and easier in the lab if we use a car battery and we attach it to the tubes and we send a huge amount of current through the tube for a very short period of time and heat it up, um, we can get it to memorize its shape. And I was like, I don't know, that sounds kind of crazy. You know, you're going to split second, you know, like less than one second of uh, high current, high temperature. Not sure that's really going to work, but I'm like, okay, if you, wanna, if you want to, go ahead, knock yourself out, try it out. And so he went in the lab, got himself a car battery and set up a circuit to do this and um, very quickly showed that uh, if you pulse the, um, the current the right way and you give the right amount of current, that this works really well and really reliably and really 
um, fast. And so you don't need to have access to a, a heat furnace in order to shape set these. You could literally do it in your garage. Um, and so we've, we've used this for, um, for making, you know, patient specific, uh, shapes on our tubes. Um, and oh, I, I remember another one, very similar, um, thing. We were using a leap motion controller, which is a, you know, an optical way to measure someone's hand position. So it's a little thing the size of a laser pointer you can set on a desk and you wave your hand over. And so another student of mine, Phil Swanee, uh, thought this was super cool and bought one. And he's like, I think we can use this to make a really interesting user interface for soft robots. And I was like, come on, you know, like the doctor's gonna wanna stand there and wave his hand in midair above, the, uh, above this box. Um, I'm like, it's not gonna feel very good. Like how are you gonna map the fingers to the tip of the robot? So he set it up and in one day of programming, he very quickly uh, showed that it worked and did a super nice demo. And I tried it out and I was like, man, this actually feels really, really good. Uh, and then, so then we started thinking about like, how could we use, there's all kinds of ways in medicine where you don't necessarily wanna touch things and you might like these touchless sensors that you could interact with by gestures. Um, and so, so there's, there's two examples where my students uh, proved me wrong, but. Fortunately for me, uh, they, you know, I let them run with it and I said, hey, you know, try it out. Let's see if it works. And they did. And it worked out, you know, very nicely. So, yeah, there's I'm sure there's lots more more examples. Let us ask you um, about as, at the beginning, you said that larger deformation, uh, for, uh, for example, uh, uh, at the beginning, you said larger deformation. But I'm, I'm just curious, do you think it could be risky? For example, a cochlear implant, you need to have very small deformation. And I mean it, for example, if you're using ionic conductive bolomer to coat the passive implant, it have a very low forces produced and strain. So um, I'm curious to ask you, to which level do you think smart material uh, can contribute an actuation and sensing in a state of uh, the traditional and actuation sensing techniques uh, we already have? We have. Yeah, um, so I think uh, new, new materials uh, have really enabled like almost everything I've done in my lab. So if you go back to uh, nitinol itself was, you know, made, it, it was a new material a long time ago, but it was an exotic material and we're still uncovering how its properties can be used um, to make the robots work that we work with every day. And so I think we need new materials um, and they will enable continually better and new and interesting ways of using soft robots. So uh, in terms of you know, strain limits, uh, cochlear implants in particular are very soft and very small. And so in the cochlea, they're not really experiencing a huge amount of strain to the point where I don't think they will suffer any sort of fatigue or failure in that way. In fact, they're almost the, the problems that they face are the other direction where they're almost like too soft and they can buckle and sometimes they can uh, by buckling, you know, tear through the membranes in the cochlea and go into the wrong chamber. Um, so, yeah, so in that particular example, I don't think it's a problem of fatigue. Now, that said, in some of the nitinol devices that we work with, they do certainly fatigue um, because we're bending them through many cycles. And we've also, especially when you machine nitinol tubes, you end up a lot of times with stress concentrations that can cause them to break. And so, yeah, uh, so. Materials science really really important and uh, lots of things that you wouldn't even think are important are like I was saying like surface finishes and whether you leave burrs behind you know just things that you just wouldn't think of until you build a prototype and then it works completely different than how you thought it should. Mm -hmm. uh. So if I ask you what are the biggest technological roadblocks that could face soft robotics in short and long term? 
Yeah, biggest technological roadblocks. I mean, I would say, uh, you know, sensing is a big one because uh, the sensors that we try to put on soft robots uh, today are a lot of times they're pretty noisy and they don't always give us all the information that we would like. So I would say sensing uh, is a big, big um, issue. In, in the robots that I'm specifically working on in my lab, it's a little bit less of an issue because we have visual um, view of at least most of the robot. And so the doctor can actually do a lot of the sensing by their own remarkably amazingly good you know visual processing and then control you know high degree of freedom systems with their hands i mean doctors are amazing at doing this so we we uh, have an advantage there in medicine um, because we have the doctor so but i would say sensing is a big one for the future of soft robots and then you know i'm just fascinated by these questions of how do you program um, the material of the robot to give you a set of de desired shapes and behaviors. And you can do that by, you know, by if you 3D print, you know, materials of different durometers in different ways, then uh, when you inflate, you know, a system or if you, you know, wind fibers in, in different ways, you could get something to inflate into a, a helix, for example. Um, I'm also uh, fascinated recently by origami. I know many people have been working on this area for a while. Uh, we haven't seen many origami robots in medicine. I think we will see more in the future. So I think origami, it's another way of essentially changing the shape of your robot through really smart geometric design um, of the, of, you know, these Any creative- Any example uh, for origami, uh, something should be changing like that in medicine and medical sector, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, I don't think there's very much origami in medicine right now. Um, I am trying to think of if I've seen. I've seen certainly seen uh, papers on it uh, now and then at conferences, um, but they tend to be scale models that are larger that are demonstrating some like basic, you know, science principle that might one day be miniaturized. Um, but I don't believe I've seen one that's doing a specific job in medicine where I said, wow, that origami design is way better than a standard tool that we use in medicine. Mm -hmm. But that said, I think there's a lot of potential there because if you just look at all the ways that, you know, paper can fold in origami, I mean, there's an infinite number of ways that you can make that work to your advantage. So, yeah, I mean, that's, those are a few things I think are really interesting in soft robots right now that we will see more of in the future for sure. I'm curious to ask you about um, non-linearities because you already mentioned that one of the issues that you want to make sure that your continuum also robot for medical application robust and safe. So when it comes to non-linearities, because non-linearities bring opportunities to soft robotic like buckling and etc. And on the other side, there's also sort of non-linearities we we have to get rid of. So if I ask you, what kind of non-linearities do you think could bring opportunities for soft robotics in medical application, and what kind what kind of non-linearities you have to get rid of? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good, good question. Um, uh, one non-linearity that I, uh, th well, so certainly, so nitinol has highly non-linear behavior, and we've uh, seen this. Usually, it's uh, an issue, like a more of a problem than a benefit in the systems uh, that we build, and so we try to design in such a way that either it stays in the linear range, or we at least know where the nonlinearities are and include them in our models. Um, so it's it's normally more of a problem. But I'm kind of fascinated by 
you know, could it be used as a benefit in various um, aspects and could you actually harness it beneficially? So one thing that um, I've, been, I've been interested in a while, I haven't yet found a way to, to use it, but this concept of a living hinge where, you know, if you have like, think back to your lunchbox um, uh, clasps, right, where they bend like way into the plastic uh, range, but yet they can cycle many, many, many times. Um, and so you can do this with, you know, a variety of plastics. You can do this with some fiber materials. Haven't quite found a, you know, perfect niche for it or a perfect application, but I think that just that concept of a li living hinge is really interesting to me and something I think we ought to be able to take advantage of, but just haven't quite figured out how yet. Yeah, that's great. So I would like to go back for speaking different language. You said that it's sometimes it's challenging. And there are many students now interested in medical application and for soft robotics. So how do you see we can overcome the challenges of speaking different language? And especially when you don't have this number of years of expertise. You say that a surgeon has to stay several years. But for master's student, a PhD student, how they can break the ice of speaking different language from different languages like medicine and medical sector and robotic side control how we can, you can overcome the challenge of speaking different language yeah I think I think the key is to uh, that most of the time you don't need to know all of another field you need to know like one specific topic in another field right so like if you're going to work on medical robotics and you're going to work in the sinuses, for example, then you need to know all about like what sinuses are there, how many are there, what shapes are they, how big are they. But you don't need to know anything about the heart. So it's yeah. not like you have to become a doctor, but you do have, you know, there's a narrow window of things that you got to become an expert in. Same is true of, you know, when we build concentric tube robots, the material properties of nitinol. And the material properties of nitinol are, you know, very crazy and complicated. And, you know, do we have to become material scientists to the point where we could design the next nitinol? Well, no. We just have to talk to some people who really understand, you know, nitinol itself and how its properties work. Talk to some people, read all the papers that we can get our hands on, and become like sort of deep experts in that one little niche of another field. So I think that's a really good path if you want to do it fast, is you bound the uh, the area of some other field that you got to know and then you dive really deep into one small area of another field and then if you need to be broader if you're more in the idea generation phase where you don't necessarily know you know what part of the body you're going into with this device or you know that you're going to use nitinol even then I think it's a matter of you know just making friends with and interacting with colleagues that do totally different things and the goals there should just be to you know tell them about what you do listen to what they do and just be open-minded and have the goal to be you know I don't want to become an expert necessarily in their field but I want to just know enough to be dangerous where I know the basic things and I could ask them a question that would invite them to you know to to solve a problem that I would have um, an example I would say, like, so doctors that I work with, right, so I learn a little bit about the anatomy. They learn a little bit about robotics. And so, I mean, the one, one that I've worked with for a while, I mean, he even knows now, he, he, he couldn't write one down for you on a piece of paper, but he knows what a Jacobian is. He knows that it maps, you know, velocities at the tip of the robot to velocities of the hand. Um, and so he's worked around engineers enough to kind of get a sense of that. And more than that, he knows, like, the basic uh, elements that he knows that we have rubbers and materials in the lab. He knows 
we can do things with pull wires. He knows we can do things with nitinol. Uh, he knows, essentially knows what the raw components of robots are. So then his mind can imagine how they might be combined in a new way. Um, but yet he doesn't have to be able to do that himself. So he didn't have to, you go to grad school in robotics to learn how to, you know, control a motor and write the, you know, write the model for a bending beam and everything. So he doesn't need to know any of that. He just needs to know that there is a model for a bending beam and that, you know, you can control a motor. And mm -hmm. so a lot of times you don't need to know as much as you think you need to know about another field, but you kind of get what you need to know by just a pure exposure. So just hanging out with people who are in that field. That's important. I also am curious to ask you this question because I think it's very important when it comes to ethics and dealing with medical robotics. Sometimes we witness that people, some people in, in, in the field publish for these researchers for sake of publishing and neglecting the factors of toxicity or biodegradable, uh, biodegradable component. So how, how we would see these approaches, uh, how we can make regulation about this uh, issue? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, part of me, uh, and I'm sure reasonable minds could disagree on this, but part of me thinks it's too early to worry about that in the field of soft robotics right now because we're still in the proof of concept initial prototyping phase. So I feel like when we get to the point where we want to make thousands or hundreds of thousands of a version of something to do a, a really useful job, then we can think about, okay, maybe we should substitute a different rubber or plastic for the rubber or plastic that we made our first prototype out. I mean, a lot of times when we do stuff in medicine, we prototype out of everything in the lab and they're not medical grade components or anything. But then before you, obviously before you commercialize and put it into a patient, then you go back and you redesign using the medical grade components. And I think the same would in my mind apply to sort of environmental issues around soft robotics. It's not a big enough dent in you know the world of like plastics that are getting thrown away or toxic materials right now that i think there's far more pressing things to worry about in that regard and so i think we should just build stuff that really really works and then think about how do we redesign it to be environmentally friendly and coming back to the trusting so, uh, medical robotics, so you mentioned that sometimes you can use machine learning, sometimes I don't know what could be opportunities in terms of maybe design or control, mm -hmm. what could be opportunities for machine learning in your work? Yeah, so uh, it can be, I think there's a few good opportunities. So one is in terms of if you have some settings that are that are difficult to model. So for example, human tissue is very hard to model. And so one of my students right now is using machine learning to, um, to basically both predict and control how steerable needles will propagate through tissue. And he's actually doing transfer learning where he's doing learning on a whole bunch of insertions into uh, various um, synthetic phantoms like gelatin of uh, various consistencies. And he's seeing like how the system will behave uh, on that. And then he's showing that the same results actually hold when he goes into brain tissue. And he's got some animal brain tissue that he's inserting in and he can actually apply the same controller. And so I think that's really interesting because obviously in that context, we wouldn't want to do you know, hundreds of insertions into actual brain tissue in order to get the robot to work right. Um, now, obviously, there are issues around that, too, in terms of uh, safety and reliability. So you would have to have some way of proving that this could never go wrong if you want to roll it out in a commercial product, which I don't know how to do yet. Um, so that's one example uh, of machine learning. 
um, that we're using in our in our systems. So it's I think it I think of it as a tool, and there are some problems that it's really good at solving, and especially image based kind of things. And so we do a lot with using medical images and trying to either segment them to identify like where the tumor is, or to uh, you know just find find a anatomy that's in the way that might be an obstacle. Um, and so I think, you know, machine learning approaches are, that's what they've really excelled at is just looking at huge piles of data of medical, of not medical, but image data, like on, on the internet and, um, inferring, uh, information out of that, um, imaging. So I think, you know, in terms of guiding robots, in terms of processing video, in terms of processing, um, CT images, that sort of thing, I think machine learning is going to have a, a big role, um, but that's not really my expertise. So uh, I end up collaborating with really good computer scientists when I want to do that sort of work. <laughs> yeah, great. So if I ask you how we ensure that developed soft robotics will be beneficial to the community or a community as well, and I would like that also because you said that you now you are working as a professor for entrepreneurship and that something sounds very interesting to have all this expertise. So mm -hmm. when you think about that, you have the project and you think about end goal or maybe what impact you could have maybe in real life. So how do you see this question, to answer this question? Right. I, well, I do think that we need to push technologies all the way through to translation into real world products. And I think that as academics, we don't do enough of that, honestly. I mean, I, there is certainly a place for basic science and there's certainly a place for people who do all basic science, but I think there's more uh, room for academics to be pushing their technologies farther. It's hard work, but I think we can do more there. And so for me, what it came down to is impact of my work. So I got to a certain point in my career right around 10 year time where I asked myself, are these devices ever going to make it out of the lab and actually get into the real world? And so I had a couple of cool devices, this concentric tube robot, and then now we've got the second startup company I mentioned on the flexible endoscopy. Um, so the concentric tube robot was at a point where my picture of it was always, I'll go pitch it to a big company and they'll take it on. Well, I tried that and they didn't take it on, even though I firmly believed in the potential it had. And so I'm like, okay, I need to bridge this uh, valley of death or this gap and make it uh, become a product myself. So I launched, the first thing you do is you find a great team of people. I mean, that's, no startup is ever going to be successful without a great team. So I found a great team. I had an outstanding uh, PhD student who is just good all around and a great uh, personality type to be an entrepreneur, uh, Rich Hendrick. And so he was working on this technology in the lab. And when he graduated, I said to him, you know, hey, what do you think about we could start a company together? Um, and so we did. And we've been working on it now for about, you know, three years. And it's going really well. And for me, it's been very stimulating intellectually because it's a whole new set of uh, issues and challenges. Like we mentioned with safety, we mentioned you know, sterility, we mentioned uh, you know, just developing something so that it's robust to over hundreds of uses and doesn't ever break. And I mean, all of these things, raising money, all of these things are things you just don't deal with uh, normally as an academic, but it's been a lot of fun for me to immerse myself in that world and be part of the process of pushing this forward. And so then, how did I become a professor of management at Vanderbilt? Well, I thought to myself, well, I wanna take these same lessons and I wanna bring them back into the classroom because this is kind of a unique experience that I've had of taking a university technology and turning it into a product. And so the class I teach actually teams up 
engineering grad students who want to take their PhD work out as a company and teams them up for a year with um, MBA students and law students. Because, you know, what I've found through my own company is we, we need all those skill sets. We need engineers, we need doctors, we need lawyers, and we need uh, business people. And it's through, again, through uh, understanding each other's world, each other's languages, the type of problems that each other is really good at, and just learning enough to be dangerous and enough to respect and understand what your colleagues are saying. That's really the process of entrepreneurship. So these students do that in the classroom, and they do it around the PhD student's uh, doctoral work. So that PhD student, I always tell the students who come into the class, by the end of the year, you'll know if you want to be an entrepreneur because you will have spent a year essentially being one in a classroom setting. It's kind of like, ends up being like senior design, but for business, um, where you work with a small team for the whole year and you come up with a plan to go from what's in the lab to what would be a commercial product. And so I think the, uh, the hardest part of that for most people is in terms of understanding the customer and doing the customer discovery piece where you really find out if there's a need for the thing that you've built. Uh, And I think that's the hardest thing because we don't often think about that. We just assume that if we build something super cool, the customer is going to want it. Um, And I think that's where a lot of people, as they go through the process, they either find out that this is what they want to do Everybody has to pivot. Everybody hears uh, you know, stuff from their customers that they never thought they would hear, and they have to tweak their idea and change it and maybe target it at a different market. And if you find you like that process, then being an entrepreneur is great. If you feel you hate that process, then you know, maybe working in basic science is, is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that was my sort of, sort of process. Yeah. That's a really excellent point. And uh, I would like to ask you, because we're closing to the end, this question. Do you think we have to commercialize the academic community, for example, robotics community? So instead of having a lot of research, not a lot, but maybe some of them not applied and that ended up like publishing only, but do you think we have to commercialize that? And the second part is, do you think, which part do you think is compelling to you as a professor or entrepreneur? Which one you like the most? Yeah, so I like them both because I actually like being across the entire spectrum from initial concepts, basic, some basic science, all the way through to um, translation and commercialization. And so do I, I think we do have a responsibility to do uh, some of this. Not everybody does, but many people, and I think more people than do it today, should hopefully in the future be thinking about it, uh, to actually push your technologies through to commercialization and to products. Now, you can do that in lots of different ways. You can work with industry partners to do that. Uh, you, can, uh, you can obviously start your own startups. Um, and there's, there's probably even other ways. You could maybe, maybe work with, uh, with other entrepreneurs where you're not the lead entrepreneur and you know, they're doing a startup and maybe you help them along. So it can take place in lots and lots of different ways, but I think there's a, there's a valley of death, right? I mean, you, any, anyone who's been around a university, you just look at the stuff people around you are doing and you ask yourself what percentage of these things end up staying on the shelf and collecting dust. And you, it's an appalling percentage. And you, you say, well, what, what can we do about this? And I think that the key thing is, well, I mean, you're the expert, right? If you did your PhD on this topic, you're the expert. You know how to do this really well. Now, you don't, need, you don't know everything you need to know. That's why you need you know, people who are good at business, people who are good at law. Um, but you know a lot, and you can really push this and bridge that valley of death and get it to the point. You just have to get it to the point where someone in industry can imagine what it would look like as a product 
and where it's de-risked enough that the investment that they have to put into it is not so big that it you know bankrupts their company's uh, R&D budget. And that, in my experience, in medical devices at least, requires a startup. And so you need a couple of years in a startup before you get to the point where a big company where it's de-risked enough that a big company can do that job. So yeah, so do we have a response? I think we have a responsibility to think about it. Not everyone has a responsibility to do it, but I hope that as we go forward in the future, more and more people will take on that challenge of actually doing it because it is a fascinating set of problems. Um, and it can be done as you know the key person at a startup, or you can be a professor and you can have startup companies that you mentor, advise. Uh, I'm president of my two startups. I probably won't always be as they get bigger and mature, but um, you can sort of be an academic and wear two hats as long as you have the commitment to continue pushing these technologies that you firmly believe in all the way through until they have societal benefit. That's a great, yeah. And do you think ego is important for the researcher? So that's a great question. And my answer to that is absolutely not. I do not think you have to have any ego to be a great researcher. I do, maybe that's in my definition of ego perhaps, but I do think you have to have confidence and I do think you have to have ambition to, to excel as an academic certainly. Um, but I don't think ego is the right term because ego implies that you think you're the best and you think that your ideas are the best. And I've known people who, uh, the first person that comes to mind for me is uh, Caleb Rucker, who is my first PhD student, who's now a professor at the University of Tennessee. And this guy is brilliant. I mean, he's, a, in my mind, one of the, I would put him, you know, in the top of the world in terms of ability to do soft robotics, ability to solve really challenging problems. I mean, ultra smart guy, but zero ego. But does he have confidence when he thinks something? I mean, he's open to new ideas, but he's confident in his ideas. And he certainly has the ambition to go and, exceed, go and excel and succeed at whatever he puts his hand to. But so I do think you need to have some, some confidence and some ambition. But I think you can be very humble as you go through your work. Um, and I don't think you need to have a big ego. Great. So if I ask you what something you have, you have to maintain a quality while working in academia, something you learn it and you have to maintain. Yeah, so for me, I think the, uh, the number one thing is, uh, and I hope it doesn't sound like trite in any way, but it's kind of the golden rule, right? I mean, it's do to others what you want them to do to you. And if you do this, it's really hard to live up to, but if you do this with your students as a professor, well, gosh, those students are gonna get a really good experience because you remember back to like how it was for you as a student and you're like, well, okay, you know, what would I have wanted them to do for me? And if you do it when you're reviewing, you know, when you're deciding, do I accept or decline this review request or you're, you're uh, you know, looking at your, a paper review or a grant proposal review and you're like, okay, you know, how would I want someone to review my grant proposal that I spent, you know, two months of my life writing and just so, if you take that kind of care with other people's work that you would want them to take with yours, it, it, I mean, that's what will make the field run really, really well. And that's what will contribute to uh, just you know, the greater good of the whole profession. And I think you can sum up a ton of it just in that one sentence of do to others what you would want them to do to you. Yeah, that's important, very important. And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you, was it personally or professionally, and was life changing for you? Yeah, so I mean, beyond beyond that sort of uh, you know golden rule, which my father emphasized a whole bunch, I would uh, change that a little bit, and I would say more than advice, it was example. 
that's sort of changed the course of my career. And that was my advisor back at Johns Hopkins, Alison Okamura. Um, and, you know, when I went to grad school, I was not thinking I would become a professor. And even halfway through grad school, I was thinking I'd probably be in industry and not a professor. But it was more through, not through any one thing she said, but just watching her live her life and watching her enjoy her life, enjoy her work, have uh, stuff that she did outside of work that were like she played ice hockey and, you know, she has a family with kids. And, you know, so watching her kind of live life and enjoy it as an academic made me uh, start thinking, hey, maybe I could do that, too, where I'd never thought of that before. So I would say it's more. You know, people are watching you. They're watching your example as you live your life. And so do that in a way that inspires other people would be, yeah, the thing for me. It's a really good example, yeah. I really enjoyed this discussion. And yeah, above I would like to thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Great talking with you.